are about to listen to 52 Podcasts to Science Fiction Film Literacy, an exploration of the history within science fiction film. Your host is Chris Garcia, and we're starting now. John Barrymore was a massive star of the stage in the early 20th century. He was just huge. And he made his first movie in 1914. And by 1920, he was, he was starting to show that he was going to be a big movie star, but he had never had that big hit. Then in 1920, he made Jekyll and Hyde. To say that it made him a big star would be an understatement. It made his whole family a big star for generations. I really, really believe that. And one of the reasons for that was that he's so damn good. His style of acting is so perfect for the silent film world. And one of the reasons for that is that his expressions were huge. Yeah, he was a scenery chewer, but in the silent era, particularly pre-1925 silence, that really played. And here he's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And he makes his transformation. There's some great makeup effects, but really, when we see the first transformation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's all physical. And yeah, it looks a little hokey today, but it's really remarkable to see the physical transformation he goes through. Now, Jekyll and Hyde has been, I think it was 1884, that it was written by Robert Louis Stevenson. And it is one of those perfect science fiction stories. It's a story of a scientist with the best of intentions who comes up with a new technology, in this case, one that would allow him to have a form where he could go and experience all of the seamy things, all the dark parts of the soul, without him being affected. Well, as things go on, it doesn't quite work out the way you think, and it turns out that the evil is, which is Mr. Hyde in this case, is more powerful than the good. And it's a really fascinating, fascinating story. The original, I think it's a novella, is great. It really is. But the adaptations of it, in particular the stage adaptations of the early 20th century, were hugely important. And I want to say John Barrymore had played both Jekyll and Hyde on stage a couple of times before this, which makes sense because he really has this amazing sort of fluidity to his interaction as the character. Now here we're seeing a whole bunch of things that are showing the evolution of film itself. The lighting is a lot more, not not just stark, but there's higher contrast. Camera angles are used actually to help tell the story. Before where you might have a single shot and everything has to happen in the shot, here it's as if the camera is being placed to play a part within the story. There's a great shot where we see uh, Jekyll about to take his potion, and it's sort of askew, you'd sort of see him, it's largely doorway, but it's perfect, because it gives you that sort of, you're viewing in on something that you're not supposed to see. Also, these are some of the most beautiful title cards I've ever seen. I absolutely love these title cards. What this story does better than most of its ilk, and there are a lot of them, and this, uh, Jekyll and Hyde has been done dozens of times as a film, uh, rarely as good as this, I think. Uh, the 31 version was, was really solid, but 
overall, this is an amazingly powerful piece. One of the things about adaptations is that you're not just taking an idea like Jekyll and Hyde and putting it on the screen without adornment. You have to have something new to give to it. Every time you do a recreation, every time you do a reimagining, you have to change something significant to the whole piece. And, you know, the first time you film something, you're going to be doing that naturally. What's interesting is that, in this case, the real power is, what they're adding, is this idea of a sensuality. And there is the chorus girl that uh, he is tempted with by his would-be father-in-law. And she's amazing. She is pure sex. It's incredible how great she is in her role. And she's just, she's stunningly beautiful. And uh, I think she's named the mysterious Gina. Uh, And the way she's shot is perfect. She's framed in such a way so that she's, one, she is showing off her womanly bits, kind of. Uh, But she's framed in a way that you... You're interacting with her eyes and her face and her décolletage. And at the same time, you're being drawn into her. And that, more than anything, you know, you sort of start to connect with Jekyll and later Hyde. I think John Barrymore's performance is one of the best things. When he's chewing the scenery, yeah, he's great. When he's playing it straight, it's amazing. Like when he's first watching the mysterious Gina on the screen, on the stage, he gets this look, and he's mostly in profile, but he gets this look as if he is starting to detach. And with this detachment, you start to see, well, maybe Hyde really is a thing. You know, maybe he was already Hyde to begin with because he's detaching. And it's not until later when he gets a sudden bout of conscience that he scurries off and becomes Jekyll again. He hasn't even done the transformation at that point. But he has come up with a a way of explaining or just showing that this is possible. This is within everyone. And it's a great, great performance. There are some weaknesses to this one, of course. I, I think it jumps a little bit. And I think part of that is the source material. Part of that is the fact that audiences just didn't have the need for so much linearity. In particular, the development of the formula and so forth and delivery of the formula doesn't really get the the play it needs. Barrymore plays a not-quite-mad scientist perfectly. And he's not a mad scientist. He really is not. Well, he kind of becomes. He's a concerned scientist looking at a world through a very specific lens. And that becomes really interesting to watch how he plays with this idea. There are a lot of wonderful moments in this that I wish were expanded on in further further works. A couple of things that I really hope you do. One, watch the YouTube of it because it's phenomenal. Uh, the one that I'm linking to is silent. There's no sound to it. And I want to say that there is an existing score that was done for the, the film uh, that is out there. I hope so, because I think this really would work well with, with music 
And I guess pictured Dennis James playing to it. What I hope you'll notice is that if you look at the other Jekyll and Hyde's, they all take some sort of different thing and they come up to their period. This one stays very true to the Victorian era, which is a really fascinating move. And you could do that back then because you weren't so far removed. Today it seems like almost kitsch to try to do that, but it does beautifully. Well, I hope you all will stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be a good one. Of course, is Metropolis, which one of my favorite films that I need to rewatch, and actually I think for the first time watch the full restored version. <laughs>